0: Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join
1: us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, and you're listening to Measured Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices. I'm going to turn it over now to my co-host on today's episode, Shannon Yohani, Research Director of the Academy for Justice, to introduce our guest on today's episode.
2: Thank you, Ashley. Today on this podcast episode, we are joined by the newest member of our Blue Ribbon Committee exploring crime and violence. Jessica Katzenstein is a postdoctoral fellow, Inequality in America initiative at Harvard University, postdoctoral affiliate program in criminal justice policy and management and visiting research scholar at the global human rights hub at Arizona State University. And Jessica is our first anthropologist on the Blue Ribbon Committee, bringing a unique and valuable perspective. Today, we're going to explore some of Jessica's work and discuss how it will fit in with the Academy for Justices' Rethinking Crime and Violence Initiative. So,
1: Jessica, I'm going to start with um, a first question, kind of for some background. As you know, there's been a significant reckoning in the U.S. on the issue of police use of force and police reform in the last few years. And some support solutions which would aim to reduce police use of force overall While others believe we must begin by holding officers who use force improperly accountable for their actions. Do you feel both of these solutions, both preventative and reactionary, are important to reducing excessive force? Or or do you feel one must occur before the other? Or is it possible that we can really see change from both happening at the same time? Thank you, Ashley Uh,
0: and Shannon. Thank you also, both of you, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So in terms of this question, so I want to start by um, mentioning Ruth Wilson Gilmore's distinction between reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms, uh, the former being reforms that do expand the power or the funding of policing and the latter being we could think of more like harm reduction. Um, And I do believe that reactionary solutions that attempt to hold officers accountable, that those could be harm reducing. And in fact, in my field work with police officers in Maryland, I found that officers sort of looked at cases that made the news, prosecutions of police who had uh, improperly used force, that they looked at those with a certain amount of Fear. And in fact, a lot of them use the phrase, I don't want to be the next YouTube star. Uh, and for some of them, that did shape how they behaved on the street. But at a larger sort of more structural level, um, although I'm not a criminologist, from what I have read and seen, there's not a lot of evidence that accountability is a real deterrent structurally when it comes to police violence and particularly anti-Black police violence. We've had some uh, prominent prosecutions of of officers, indictments and prosecutions of officers over the last uh, 10 years or so. And we haven't exactly seen the rates of police use of force go down. So I think that the idea that uh, reactionary responses have to come first um, is not supported by the data. I certainly don't have any real sense that individual accountability will solve or even significantly address the issue of anti-black police violence in the US because this is a structural issue. So if anything, I think the if if we're going to order these solutions, I think that preventative has to come first. Of course, one can, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, but I think preventative has to come first because we could think of preventative solutions as those that address the structural issues that bring police into greater contact with poor people of color, particularly poor Black people in the U.S. And I think that addressing that is is the only way that we can uh, get to a world where there's at least less police use of violence.
2: Thank you, Jessica. Jessica. You mentioned that in that conversation just now that the police use of force and violence is a structural issue, that it's part of the fabric uh, that exists in both policing and and in the United States. In your paper, The Wars Are Here, How the United States Post-9-11 Wars Helped Militarize U.S. Police, you argue that while the militarization of American police has exploded since 9-11, that militarization is deeply ingrained in the fabric of America and not just a switch that we can turn off easily. So society generally sees military uses of force, even in domestic settings, as separate from police uses of force. Do you agree with that? And should the military be considered a wholly separate entity from the police? Or do you believe they're too intertwined to be separated?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. Um, So, of course, uh, the police and the military are institutionally separate, right? Like they're governed by a different set of laws. They're differently structured bureaucracies. They operate to a certain extent, um, although there are plenty of overlaps um, in, in, in different parts of the world. But for me, the point is to understand how entangled they are when we normally think of them as completely different arms of state power. So in that paper you mentioned, I, and I'm drawing on uh, a long history of scholars who've looked at this, so I'm just saying a few for anyone who's interested, Julian Go, Alfred McCoy, Fauna Jamal, Michael Siegel, etc. cetera. Um, so all of these scholars, <laughs> excuse me, look at how the institutions of the police and the military in the U.S. grew together. So The example that I think more people are familiar with now, uh, especially post-2020, is slavery, that slave patrols and militias and the federal military all work together to control enslaved people and prevent uprisings. But there are also some lesser-known aspects, uh, lesser-known parts of that history, uh, where we can see the police and the military having been entangled powers. Learning from each other, um, the boomer—what M. A. Césaire calls the boomerang effect of colonization—so the U.S. military developing tactics in the occupation of the Philippines, in Vietnam, more recently in Iraq, and bringing those tactics back to the home front to police racialized communities, um, particularly poor black communities. So this this is an argument for me against the um i mean frankly to be harsh the fantasy of the idea of a non-militarized police force and that's not to say as as you mentioned that we haven't seen an intensification of what we might call militarization we absolutely have um military sharing of equipment and tactics with police has escalated since 9/11 in particular but it's to say that Uh, Sometimes when we talk about demilitarizing the police, we're sort of implicitly relying on the idea that it's possible to purify the police and that police and military forms of power have ever at some point in our history been separated. Um, When in reality, history historians have shown that they haven't so harm reduction, as I've mentioned earlier, harm reduction is is of course a worthy goal worth striving for. Um certain forms of attempting to demilitarize the police are immediately harm reducing. Um, but my argument there, and again building on these scholars, is that uh that demilitarization can't be based on a fantasy of purifying the police of military influence and, and militarization.
1: You know, many have proposed removing certain responsibilities from the police altogether or allowing other unarmed individuals, non-police like social workers or crisis counselors to respond to certain types of issues in the community. Is is this something you you're on board with? You could get on board with why or why not? Um and do you think that there's any part of of this this idea of demilitarization allow, which would allow um, police to respond to mental health calls, for example, without excessive violence? Or do you think it'd be still better handled by social workers or uh, other types of experts? Thank you.
0: That's also a great question. I think to
1: start uh, answering this question,
0: I think requires thinking about how we want these cases to go both we writ large, and much more importantly, actually, how the people involved in these cases, the people who themselves are in crisis and their loved ones, um, particularly those who call police, who call 911, how they want these cases to go. Um, and as we all know, it's it's not uncommon for police to arrive at a mental health call and shoot suicidal people, even those who aren't threatening police directly. and that gets to the point that, as I found in my field work, police are fundamentally taught how to deal with threat, not how to give care. Um, the idea of giving care is sort of an add-on. Um, and this is something that's important to note that many officers themselves recognize. This isn't just a critique that's coming from you know, progressive organizers or abolitionists. It's also coming from police. I met officers in the course of my field work who remembered The Reagan era of deinstitutionalization and how their departments started seeing more and more people on the street, more and more people in mental health crisis, people whose forms of public social support had been removed and who they were then coming into contact with more and more often. And many of them argue, in fact, that it shouldn't be their job to respond to most forms of mental health crisis and behavioral health crisis that. It's not their job. Many of them uh, who I spoke to really hate responding to these kinds of calls for various reasons. And they resent being asked to uh perform work, to perform a whole variety of work, especially after the after the Reagan era means they resent being asked to be quote unquote social workers as well as as well as police. But I say quote unquote because um it's of course um You know, social workers and mental health professionals have a certain kind of training and a and a breadth of experience and certifications and so forth that officers simply don't have, even when they even when we give them mental health trainings, which again could can could be harm-reducing, but nonetheless are usually, you know, very brief, sometimes quite cursory, sometimes, you know, just a couple hours once a year that's simply not a replacement for the kind of work that a social worker or another mental health professional can do. And it's, you know, I I think it's also a question of respect for that expertise and that experience to say that officers cannot replace um, mental health professionals. They're just not trained for it. They're, they're, even if they're demilitarized, Even if we say that they come to these kinds of calls um, without a military mindset, quote-unquote, of threat elimination, which is also in some ways a, a police mindset to get to the earlier question. Even if they come to these calls with some degree of training, their fundamental mandate is just not responding well to these kinds of calls. And that, again, is why we see So many of these calls, um, particularly when it comes to uh, calls made for for people of color who are in crisis, that we so often see these calls ending in completely needless violence.
2: Thank you so much, Jessica. Uh, We've seen pushes to decriminalize things such as traffic infractions, to reduce police interactions with people, hopefully reducing police violence overall but many worry that decriminalizing things and under-policing may just lead to increased criminal violence. Do you think this is a legitimate fear? And what ways do you see that we could reduce police violence while keeping communities safe from criminal violence?
0: So in terms of traffic violations specifically, and then I'll get to the broader question, many traffic violations, of course, are civil violations. And it is a complicated question, right? Because certain forms of Traffic violations like speeding or drunk driving, most notably, are public harms or could be public harms, but uh most violations aren't and are ways to punish for people who can't, you know, go in and get their uh headlight changed um, or who struggle to pay the be required to register the car. So decriminalizing minor criminal offenses that maybe should be civil offenses like broken taillights in some states and or not enforcing or even rolling back certain civil offenses that are currently enforced by police is low-hanging fruit. We know that arrests and jail and fines for minor infractions can set off a whole spiral of debt, incarceration, job loss, etc., especially for poor people of color. To get back to the last question, many kinds of mental health calls, things like sex work, um, those, many of those kinds of violations can be shifted from policing, or at least we don't need police to be responding to every one of those calls. Um, There are also arguments, uh, as we saw after Ferguson in 2014, to reorient the Political economy around traffic violations. Uh, Where I worked in Maryland, for the most part, individual departments didn't benefit directly from writing traffic tickets. Uh, The money generated from those fines and fees went into a general pool, which was then paid back out to police, but it wasn't each individual department benefiting directly. Whereas in Ferguson, as the Department of Justice investigation showed, the police department was benefiting directly from writing traffic tickets. So that's also a low hanging fruit, removing that incentive um, from from police departments to pull people over for traffic violations. But I think to get to your broader question about uh, whether decriminalization of certain forms of, of what we currently call violations might lead to increased criminal violence, whether that fear is legitimate, I think the question we have to ask to start is: For whom do we want police to exist? Um, if we want them to continue to exist as they do, in order to protect, um, in order to protect property, in order to enforce the existing status quo, um, in order to frankly protect uh, a broader system of white supremacy and and capitalism, then then it is a genuine worry that uh, certain forms of decriminalization could shift that mandate. But if we want police to, for instance interrupt or solve or somehow intervene in interpersonal violence, particularly in poor communities of color, I think the the question we need to ask is for whom police should exist and We know, for instance, that police case closure rates of homicides in poor Black communities are incredibly low. Uh, Baltimore, where I did some of my research, is a great example of that. People in those communities are suffering under the combined weight of interpersonal violence and state violence and abandonment, and many do not see police as an effective solution frankly to the the issues that are making them collectively and individually suffer so if police exist if we want them to exist primarily to continue uh enforcing property rights and protecting capitalism and white supremacy structural white supremacy then you know then then this is a a legitimate fear but if we want to envision a form of policing that is somehow more uh, inclusive or that is genuinely somehow going to solve um, or address larger structural issues than decriminalization of violations that are not about interpersonal violence um, is, again, a fairly low hanging.
1: Jessica, you've talked a lot about you know, how race and ethnicity and how, how those play into um, the broader context of, of this conversation. And I want to now turn to um, police and law enforcement training. Um, I don't think we can really talk about police use of force without talking about race and ethnicity. Um, and as you pointed out, Black Americans are nearly 12 times more likely than white Americans to report that their most recent police contact involved misconduct. And as an anthropologist, you've written and spoken in the past about how police trainings can have an effect on how officers interact with people of color and other minorities in the community. Can you talk a little bit about like, what needs to change with regard to officer training? What's, in your opinion, what is the most critical uh, aspect to this?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I'm. I this is an excellent question, and I'm struggling a bit to answer it because I'm always reluctant to offer... Uh, positive policy prescriptions Uh, my own research is on why police reforms fail and particularly those that are not simply harm reducing but that have a more substantive mandate Uh, not more substantive sorry but those that have a uh, broader mandate I guess that are supposed to structurally remake policing in some way uh, so for instance, one of the one of the training issues I look at is scenario trainings where officers realistically act out things that they perform in their work. So making arrests, de-escalations, handling a mass shooting, et cetera. Um, and these are really meant to be like reformers often talk about them as necessarily improving the way that officers perform their work by minimizing fear, right? Um, whereas I found in my research, um, working with officers who were doing scenario trainings, that those trainings, instead of just minimizing fear, simply reoriented it. And in fact, in some ways, justified that fear more powerfully than before. And I think this helps explain why it is that we've seen some of the same reform policy prescriptions repeated over and over throughout history. Um, community policing is a great example of that. That paradigm has been around since at least the 60s. Uh, we've seen it repeated in since 2014. And we accept in perhaps isolated instances over short periods of time. Uh, I don't think we've seen it substantively remove the mandate of policing. So, uh, and I think one reason for all of this is that of course, police violence um, is not an individual issue. Um, it's it's structured by anti-blackness, which very much exceeds policing in the U.S. There are structural incentives for officers to be more violent in poor black neighborhoods. There are there is a legal architecture, um, for instance, in the neighborhood where Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore, that uh, gives officers more discretion to stop people and charge people um where they necessarily be able to in wealthier wider areas. So all of that I guess is a preface to say that when I look at police training policy prescriptions, I'm always wary of those that give more money or power to police to get back to um with Wilson Gilmore's distinction between <clears throat> reformist and non-reformist reforms. Um, I think trainings that inform police, that educate police, uh, for instance, about um, children's brain development so they understand uh, how the mind of a teenager works, um, uh, that inform police about what it's like to live with certain kinds of mental health issues, like those can be harm reducing for individual officers. I certainly think, and I saw in my field work, that those kinds of trainings can shift the ways that individual officers approach people. And so I'm not trying to say that um those kinds of trainings are meaningless by any stretch. I think if if they do a certain kind of harm reduction, then they can be helpful and meaningful as a stopgap, as a band-aid. But I think getting back to where I started the response, um it's it's really difficult to having now worked with officers to offer much more than that um, I really don't have any I really don't have any overarching response to the question of what could improve police training um, because I think what we need to do to substantively change policing and police violence in this country rests outside the institution of policing writ large.
2: Jessica, that segues perfectly into my next question, which, so outside of trainings, what would you say are the most vital reforms that, if adopted, would impact the disproportionate use of force against people of color? Uh, and where do those reforms come from? And uh, and who needs to initiate those reforms? For me,
0: I think reforms that minimize contact between police and um, civilians, um, particularly for people of color, particularly for Black people, are the most effective means of reform that we have and again i think this is a form of harm reduction and to get back to some of your earlier questions decriminalizing for instance marijuana possession or pulling police back from what maybe should be civil traffic offenses either through decriminalization or not sending police to those calls as i mentioned earlier I think those are all excellent ways to minimize the number of times that police are brought into contact with people they could harm. And again, I think this is something that many of the officers I spoke to support at least to a certain extent uh because many of them see themselves as first and foremost uh designed to respond to public crises like mass shootings. Um and that's one of those spaces where I think we um, or at least I don't have a better solution uh, than police as they're currently constituted um, to things like mass shootings. But I think in terms of reducing contact between police and and poor people, um, particularly poor people of color, um, I think we can think in terms of decriminalization and we can also think in terms, as, as abolitionists often do, Uh, of progressive solutions to social problems that rest outside police um, and shifting funding from police departments, but more broadly, carceral solutions to social norms, shifts funding to programs um, that, of course, do not exist yet, like Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. Um, higher taxes on the wealthy that are reinvested in disinvested black neighborhoods, policies designed to address the climate crisis, gun control, um, desegregation, and housing policy is another major space where um, investing in progressive solutions um, to generations of of harm, the generations of harm that racial capitalism has produced, I think is one incredibly important space to be thinking about reforms that are not directly about police, but that would hugely impact the way that police violence works. Um, Because again, as I saw in my own research, where poor people of color are segregated into confined neighborhoods, those neighborhoods, um, both in terms of the legal enablement of higher levels of police discretion, as well as just um, department policy. So for instance, even though quotas are technically illegal, quotas, of uh, you know, how many tickets you have to write, et cetera, technically illegal in Maryland, um, at least when I was doing my fieldwork, officers in many departments um, are still measured in terms of their performance by how many tickets they write and how many arrests they make. Um, and these segregated neighborhoods are excellent places for them to spend their time. Um, So all of that is kind of a roundabout way of saying that uh, desegregation and more generally um, better housing policy is one way to think about um, police reform from a different vantage. And I know that that can sound tangential or it can sound like a, a disavowal. It can sound like an endorsement of the idea that violence is only a problem of poverty. And I think we know that's that's not true and, uh, at least not entirely true. Um, and we can look at mass shootings again to, uh, to sort of make that case. Um, but in so far as, uh, anti-black and anti-poor police violence in this country tends as, as those words, uh, suggest to fall along lines of race and poverty, um, investing in progressive, Solutions to social harm, I think, is the only structural, substantive way we have to lessen overall overall social violence. And then, just briefly, in terms of um, the question about police oversight, uh, I don't ever want to um, uh, undermine or denigrate the very hard work of uh, of people who work on police oversight, including people I worked with in my field work. Um, I think it's important work. Um, That said, and I think some of them would agree, uh, we nonetheless, I think, haven't seen substantive structural long-term change from police oversight in the form of, for instance, consent decrees. Baltimore, for instance, the Baltimore Police Department has been under a consent decree for years now. And one of the recent oversight task force reports that i read said something about how after 5 years we are finally seeing some baby steps forward um i'm paraphrasing obviously but you know i i, I think that when you speak privately um as as i have in my research to people who have been in, involved in police oversight work uh, for a long time um you know they'll they'll say that they think it's important work that it's worth striving for that it's a moral good to have public oversight of policing as a public institution and I agree with that but many will also sound a note of cynicism that their work will ultimately lead to long-lasting change because in the history of the U.S. I think it's fair to say given for instance the rates of police killings um, we I think frankly haven't really seen that.
2: So given what you just discussed, Jessica, and that uh, this need for progressive solutions to social problems and that we're not there yet, I have two questions to follow up. What can lawyers, academics, policymakers, those outside actual police work do to bring about this meaningful change? But then also on top of that, if this meaningful change is brought forward, do you think police oversight will still continue to be something that is necessary? Sure. So As far as the first question, um, I
0: think, I think what I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. And so, uh, you know, of course, there's a limit to how I can advise folks in other fields who know their fields better than I do. But from my own vantage, I can say that I think uh, any kind of research or advocacy work on policing um, should, should start, should have to start with two sort of, uh, should have to start first with history um with understanding why is it that these often promulgated police reforms haven't haven't enacted the change the substantive change that they've promised. Um, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, community policing is a great example of that. Um, and I think there it's important to question the idea which um, police themselves will will sometimes put forward that these reforms, historical failures are always just a problem of implementation. And if we tinker with it and we change some incentive here or there, um, then we'll get it right the next time. And I think that has historically set people up for disappointment, um, given that policing, I think, in, in, in at least structural ways, continues to operate as it always has. And that also gets to, I think, in terms of bringing about meaningful change, another really important starting point, which many people, of course, are already working on, have been working on for a long time, is refusing to think about policing in a vacuum. And this is something that I think, for instance, some sort of old school um, criminology is sometimes guilty of, which is uh, thinking about, yeah, thinking about police in a vacuum as if, all that uh, structures their work is law today's law, today's policy, today's behavior, um, and not the sort of broad sweep of the social structures in which policing are implicated and to which they're just one part. And again, housing uh, and desegregation, segregation policies are a great example of that. And then, and I know that's not a very satisfying answer to bringing about meaningful change on this topic, but I think that comes for me partly from the fact that, you know, and just as a brief aside, um, when, I, when I started my field work, I was not, I didn't know much about police abolition. Um, I was skeptical of reform, but it was really seeing the ways that um, attempts at meaningful change within the institution of policing, like working with police and police departments ends up getting re-conscripted and reabsorbed into policing um seeing that through the lens of officers themselves I think tilted me over into uh into being much more sympathetic to abolitionist work and abolitionist thinking and so that's why um I personally feel um, relatively cynical about the possibility of doing anything within the institution of policing to substantively change its mandate. And again, that's, I want to keep reemphasizing this because I think it's really important. Um, I don't think that means that there is no work to be done in the here and now, of course there is, um, there is absolutely work to be done to minimize the harm of policing. But I think, I think for me, it's really important to think about that kind of work um, and that kind of research and that kind of advocacy from the vantage of um of again from reduction. So uh and then in terms of the question about oversight, um, you know, if we if we imagine a world, and I think it is an imaginable world, maybe not from, from 2023 when we're kind of staring down the barrel of the 2024 elections. Um, but I think it is theoretically possible to imagine a world um where some some or many of uh, progressive policy reforms beyond policing have been implemented, and in fact, we see that in other countries. The U.S., of course, being uh, the only major rich nation to uh, industrialized rich nation to not have socialized health insurance, just to take one example. Like we are outliers in so many ways, but I think it's it, so for that reason. It's it's certainly possible to envision a world where these progressive policy reforms have been implemented, um, and where police forces um, still exist in, in more or less the same iteration that they are now and where police oversight is an important uh, an important component of minimizing police violence and of keeping police power in check. That's not the world that um, many abolitionists imagine or desire and I think it's important to name that but it certainly would be a world I think where um, there would be better than what we have now
1: well that brings us to the end of our time today Uh, we want to thank jessica for a terrific discussion thanks also to our producer amina ketchin kamel and to my co-host today shannon yohani this product is a service of the academy for justice at the sandra day o'connor college of law arizona state university i'm ashley otto and this has been measured justice